Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Here we are with another session from the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival of 2021. This was a live session on stage in the State Library of New South Wales, and it was on the last day of the festival. So you'd expect everyone to be feeling maybe a little tired, but that wasn't the case. It was still exciting, and it was fantastic to be once again in front of a live actual audience and to have those uh, audience in questions at the end. The session, as I said, was called Fresh Blood. It was uh, with a group of debut crime writers, Lynn Yawat, Sarah Thornton, Peter Papathanasiu, and Lorraine Peck. Now, talking to these writers was a lot of fun, and they made the session so easy for me, especially when they took over towards the end. It just became an extended chat between themselves. Suzanne, facilitating a, a panel is not always that easy, is it? No, no. It's um, it, The art of the facilitation is to make everything look easy, even when you're paddling hard and even when things might well be exploding around you whether or not the audience realises it. Yes, I, I mean, I think we've both had panels uh, where it's sort of not quite gone so so well and you sort of have to do the, the quick double take on your questions and try and work out a, a reframing, don't you? I had one that I remember in particular. It wasn't a panel. It was an in-conversation with a um, pretty eminent uh, international writer and I'd got pretty smart that year because I wanted my notes down to a page and I thought the smaller I print them out, the more questions will fit in the page and it'll look, if I slip it onto the table, like I have no questions at all because I think the facilitators I most admire are those who just go with nothing. I think Richard Glover is someone like that. He has almost no notes and I don't know whether there's a... He has a logic within his mind that has the questions in some sort of order or whether he has a photographic memory. Anyway, the closest I could come to was one page. Get That's on stage <laughs> with this, this superstar and um, sit down. The lights go on and it's the Rosalind Packer Theatre, so the lights are really harsh and I couldn't read a thing. It was in eight font <laughs> and I could read nothing. And my guest had quite a presence and he just gave me a slight look like, are you going to be able to manage this? <laughs> and it was all I needed. And I thought, right, eight font, I can't read a thing, on with the show, on we go. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's tricky, isn't it? And you just kind of, you just have to sort of trust that you've done the research and that you've kind of got enough of all that sort of background material stashed in your head that you can just sort of whip out when you need it. Because uh, sometimes, even if with the best prepared panels, people might be a bit nervous, they might be a bit anxious, it might be their first time they've been on a panel and you've just got to sort of manage it, don't you? Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think that the notes are often more for confidence than anything else. I think if you're prepared enough, you really could just improvise given that you've done the preparation you need beforehand. I've just never quite got there. I mean, do you ever go on stage without without any notes at all? Oh, no, I'd be too terrified. I've gone and done things where I've prepared 
And then by the time I'm sort of into the interview, I don't look at the notes at all. That's that's happened a few times. That's probably a, a, the mark of a good session, really, when you're sort of at that point. But, you know, I sort of, there's times where you're really sort of scrabbling and, and the worst feeling is when you kind of get to that point and you go, I've only got one more question left and this panel is only halfway through and you have to kind of really try to start thinking of what else can you ask that isn't going to be, um, you know, problematic. But, uh, but thankfully, I haven't had any of those problems with the bad festivals, certainly not last year. And uh, I have to say that, you know, this session, this um, the, the Fresh Blood session, which I have, I've done it a couple of times and I really like doing them because it is authors that have, it's their first book, it's their debut crime book. Um, it might be, sometimes it's their first uh, festival as well. And so it's there's the, this energy about it. And it's really exciting to kind of, be a part of that and that was certainly the case with um with this panel where uh, as you'll see it was it was a lot of fun everyone was sort of quite chatty and Lorraine Peck in particular has quite an admission towards the um the start of the session relating to what happened the night before um but she went on with and kept on going like a trooper so um yeah stay tuned we've got this uh the fresh blood session with Lynn Yowett, Sarah Thornton Peter Papathanasiu and Lorraine Peck. So keep listening. Welcome to Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival 2021. Uh, we like to start things off at Bad with an acknowledgement of country, where we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional owners of this land and pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Andy Muir, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Dixon Room today for this interview and discussion with uh, Lorraine, Sarah, Lynn, and Peter. I wasn't going to go with surnames because I didn't uh, test that out first. So there you go. Uh, as you know, we're doing, this is the uh, Fresh Blood session. So let's get started because we're all here to hear from our authors, not me. And I thought because this is a... Um, a, a session on fresh blood and being a new author and those sorts of things. Now that you guys are all published, is it as you expected it to be? <laughs> Come Can on, I Giggles. Start? Yeah. Firstly, I just want to tell everyone I'm really hungover. So <laughs> please, please be kind to me. I, I went to the um, Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival Danger Awards last night because I found out yesterday I was shortlisted, which was like, Whoa! And Chris Hammer, the man at the back with the camera, won along with Gary Jubilant. So, yay. <laughs> and in his namesake, I got hammered. So, <laughs> so um, what was the question? Well, look, it was just a question of, you know, now that you've published, how is it? Is it as you expected it to be? It was really weird because I was published in the middle of COVID as some of the other writers in this room um, were as well. And so that's tricky. Uh, and it's hard to break break out as a deb debutante in a very difficult um, market. Uh, but uh, everyone in the crime community has been incredibly welcoming. I'm always just amazed by the people in this industry and how warm and welcoming everyone is and how wonderful my readers are reaching out to me and saying they love the book. So, you know, it's been really weird <laughs> but fun. Excellent. 
um, I don't think I actually had too many expectations. I was so excited just to be uh, getting published. And uh, but but to speak about the things that did surprise me, even though the you know my expectations were quite limited, uh, I was really surprised by the amount of editing that goes on after you think you're finished. Um, you know, books are so collaborative when you get to that part of the story um, or the process. Um, prior to that, it's quite quite a solo sort of effort, as you maybe know some of you are aspiring writers or writers as well. Um, the other thing that was really unexpected was the length of time between <laughs> actually signing a contract and seeing the thing in print, you know, that that can be and, – and, you know, that time you're, you're getting slotted into a publisher's schedule. You're also um, – so you've got to wait. There's plenty of other people in, ahead and other books ahead. And then there's other things like COVID that might delay things or whatever. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're probably two of the most surprising things I've encountered. Well, I'm going to say I'm living the dream. So um, my book came out in February this year and, yeah, very long period of time between signing the contract and publication. Um, And I was lucky enough that I'm from Melbourne, so I'm sure you all know we just have lived lockdown endlessly for the last two years or it seems that way. But I managed to have a launch um, where we all had... Um, we, we weren't wearing masks. I think we were meant to when we weren't eating or drinking, but everyone was eating and drinking and talking the whole time. So I had a really fantastic launch. I think there were about 150 people there. It was just incredible. And if it had been the following week, we it would have been cancelled because a friend of mine was launching the following Saturday or having her launch the following Saturday and it was cancelled. So I was really lucky. And then I've just I've been to a few other writers' festivals interstate and in Victoria and some have been cancelled but I've been to a few and it's just been fantastic. People, the organisers, the other fellow writers um, and so on have been absolutely fantastic and I've been on several podcasts. There are a couple of podcasts this year and YouTube channels and radio shows and uh, I have a friend who writes... um, Uh, YA fiction and she said to me a a few years ago she said you know you think your life is going to change after you get published and she said but it doesn't but I'm here to report to (laughs) Marion that my life has changed um, the people that I've met and become friends with the experiences I've had the um, from you know conversations with readers and so on I am, you know, I am living the dream. Um, I'm not wealthy. I'll just put that out there too. <laughs> we don't do this for money, believe me. But, um, yeah, it's been fantastic. So I, I kind of didn't expect quite that, you know, people talk about it being a roller coaster. It's actually, for me, it's just been up like that. So maybe I'm about to hit the top and it's gonna, I'm going to plummet down. I don't know. But it's just been fantastic. So thank you very much to my fellow writers and readers and podcasters and all of those people who've supported me. It's been absolutely great. Mm. And what about you, Peter? Your book's probably the freshest year. It's only sort of two months. Yeah, October. Yeah. Um, but I'd already published a book in 2019, which is a nonfiction story about my family. So um, I had that experience then of, you know, the ride that you kind of go on. Um, 
and and not to downplay it or anything, but yeah, it's it's an industry, and you just sort of you know slot in, and it's a big thing for you. But you sort of just walk into a bookshop and you know, potentially overseas bookshops, and you just the shelves are just covered. So you go, oh, uh, where am I? Uh, oh, there I am. Or you, or you have to ask where your book is sometimes. Um, um, yeah, the community is very welcoming and, and supportive and warm. And part of that is because it is a real challenge to get a book out there. So people, ha- you know, they, they, they don't forget about that, um, which is something I felt um, for both my books. And, you know, I guess for many years, um, we wonder if our work is going to get shared with um with readers so the thought of having it out there and the making connections with people um that it's off your hard drive and in people's hands and in their heads is um yeah it's just a warm feeling and then readers give you feedback um and that's just you know mm. icing on the cake <laughs> how's the um how has the experience been different because you had the memoir first which is obviously very personal and then you have a piece of fiction now is it been different? Is it? A- oh yeah, with the memoir, both books got uh, uh, have gotten great publicity. The memoir, people wanted to talk to you about your your personal story, um, and it's more about you. Uh, and the book is kind of just something you've done as well. <laughs> Whereas now <clears throat> there is a sense that um, maybe I'm a real writer, uh, that I'm a novelist, that I've created characters, um, scenes, tension. Um, and there is a sense of achievement that I, that I didn't have that first time. Although a friend read my memoir and, and you know, he said, look, what you've actually done, you, you've executed it, you know, so don't downplay what you've done here. A lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but it is, a, it is a feeling of being almost more of a writer. Well, you're a, a professional uh, writer and copy editor as well, aren't you? Yeah, uh, not so much copy editor, but uh, but I, I edit, but not yeah. so much copy. I do other things like I'll just put in a plug here, things like government reports and um, captions for artwork and all kinds of things. Um, so what's the question? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I've like done plugged myself. You know, it's the you know there's you have the day to day you know writing job, oh. and then you have the creative. And yeah, they are so, quite different. Yeah, so my day job. Um, I don't know whether any of you've heard of this, but, but sometimes it's called grey literature. So um, I, I've had this thing hanging over me that for, you know, 25 years or something I've been writing and editing grey literature and that just sounds awful, right? <laughs> Who wants to say, yeah, I write grey literature? So um, for me writing this was, um, yeah, an, an effort and, an you know, a massive accomplishment when you begin to understand what other novelists have gone through to create something and um, both the work, as Sarah said, that people put in, in solitary time thinking, oh, am I, am I a fool for trying to write something that anyone might want to publish? And then the collaborative process of editing, which I found terrific because I edit other people's work. It was lovely for someone to edit mine and to get such great um, input into making it a far better story and a, um, and a, a richer, more complex um novel and uh, yeah the editing process was terrific so yeah was, it, as i said it was nice to be on the other side of the desk yeah yeah and and what um how what was the process that you went through to get your book published sarah was it a long a long path or uh well it it started with a moment of enlightenment at a writers festival where i was sitting there as a corporate lawyer thinking i might write a novel and i just had this light bulb moment 
where I thought I need to live a creative life. I also need to live on a boat and write novels. (laughs) And, And that might sound weird, but my husband is a really experienced sailor. So that was kind of step one, was that really compelling moment where I thought, I need to do something about this and do it now. And we did indeed get a boat within six months. We didn't move on board for four years because that's life. We have setbacks. So that was kind of the start. But in that four years, I started writing my first novel on my weekends. Um, you know, my, my job was probably a 10-hour day most days or more um, and on the weekend. But I, I, I managed to squeeze in some time on the, on the weekends to write a first draft and it was the first thing I'd ever written other than about 10 chapter ones of different books that I started and never progressed. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where they are, which is a shame because some of them weren't bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so that was kind of step one. Um, I then had a really great mentor uh, who I met at a masterclass at a writer's festival, a fellow by the name of Michael Collins, an Irish uh, writer who was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and now has a a humdinger of a book out now. Uh, But um, he actually read my third draft and really helped me through it and I learned so much. Um, And the fourth draft then went out to, um, actually I think it might have been a fifth, I, I lost count, uh, the, that went out to agents and I have to uh, say my lovely agent Gabby Naher is sitting here in the front row and she wrote me an email that I'll never forget. It was two lines in typical Gabby uh, succinct fashion and it was, Sarah, I'm loving this but I haven't finished it yet. Do let me know if you hear from any other agents. <laughs> and I almost fell over. I was just delighted. I mean, I had Michael Collins kind of endorsement that what I was doing was worthwhile and had had merit. Um, He loved it, loved the pace and so forth. Um, But to have Gabby, an industry professional, actually say it was was good, um, that was kind of my highlight really in the whole journey. And from there, um, I don't know about everybody else, but once you have an agent um, things become quite a lot easier in terms of, you know, it's out of your hands about whether you, how you get a publisher and, and how that all pans out. So um, Gabby managed to get me signed up for a two-book deal. I had a, it's funny, you know, your first book, you've written the whole manuscript, many drafts. Um, the second book, I had written a one-page synopsis that didn't even have an ending because with my writing, I don't even know who the villain is. Uh, I'm very much a pantser, so uh, as they call it, not a plotter or a planner. Um, But Gabby, you know, God bless her, managed to sell that second one-page synopsis and get me a two-book deal. So um, that was kind of my writing uh, journey into the publishing world. Hmm. What about you, Lorraine? Were you plotting as you were being sawn in half by magicians? (laughs) Yeah, my first job was as a magician's assistant and my last job before this one was as a marketing director. So I think both of those jobs and all the jobs, the many, many, many jobs in between have in common smoke and mirrors, which is, of course, what 
writing is all about, writing crime thrillers, it's all about smoke and mirrors. And uh, I always wanted to write the kind of book I love to read, but I didn't know how to do that. And I was, I didn't even know it was possible. And I was very lucky to read The Dry by Jane Harper, um, an incredible debut uh, when it first came out. And in the, the acknowledgement section, she mentioned doing an online creative writing co course with Curtis Brown in London. And I thought, oh, I didn't know you could do a creative writing course online. Right. I'm going to do that. So I Googled it and found out it was a bit too advanced for me because I was just such a novice. So for every aspiring writer here, I can highly recommend the Writer's Studio here in Sydney do an online writing course called The First Draft. And that's how this was written. And from there, I got into the Curtis Brown course in London online, the same one Jane Harper got into. And, and that gives you access to agents like Gabby and all the agents at Curtis Brown in London. And one of those agents, Jane Harper's agent, Alice Lutchens, read the book and loved it and said, I want to represent you. And then she got Pip and Mason from Curtis Brown here in Sydney involved. And then, you know, suddenly you're sitting in the boardroom of um, the uh, Curtis Brown agency across the table from publishers and they're pitching to me about why I should go with them. It was just such a pinch me moment, like incredibly surreal. And uh, I went with text publishing and got a two book deal. And this is the first one. And, you know, from go to woe from first draft. Oh, by the way, little aside, the first draft coincided with me getting ovarian cancer and the last draft coincided with me getting breast cancer. And I slayed both of those cancers. So, by the way, um, and then... Uh, uh, then you go through this, this process. It's, it's five years from go to woe for this book and the sequel will take me two years to write. So I'm getting quicker, but I'm still not as quick as some of the audience here, like Anna Downs, for instance, who can just crack the second book out. So good, The Shadow House. Uh, so, yeah, uh, and for me, I guess, career highlight so far is... Um, uh, winning the Ned Kelly uh, Prize for Best Debut, which just was such a surreal moment too. I didn't expect it. I was amazed to be shortlisted. Um, so to win that just makes me feel really validated that maybe I'm on the right track and writing is supposed to be my career because, you know, it's, it's, it's not something we know that we're in the right space or not, but apparently I am. Mm. It's, it's, it's an interesting point though, isn't it? Because um, as you say, like we're being on the right path and sometimes when we kind of look back at our lives, we sort of see that we have been on some sort of trajectory that we weren't aware of. I mean, do you think that, I mean, all of you have very, very different backgrounds before you sort of became writers or became published. And do you think that that has informed your writing? Is, is it a part of your writing? I mean, you know, well, I, ended, I ended up writing a former corporate lawyer as my protagonist, mm. largely because I needed to write someone I knew how they would think. Um, I didn't trust my imagination. 
Um, it was my first crack at it. So I picked someone who I knew I could inhabit that mind. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for sure. And then she does all sorts of crazy things that, you know, conservative little corporate lawyers like me would never do. Mm. But, um, you know, once you're liberated with a new character, with this character, you know, they can, they can do everything, every, anything you want, um, you know, as long as it's plausible um, or even a slight stretch. Most of our readers are, are really lovely and kind and they'll suspend belief for, for part of it. Yeah. And, you know, she's having action and thrills and, and whatnot. But, you know, I've always thought lawyers um, use words to disentangle society's most complex knots. So words, you're always building a narrative. You've mm-hmm. got to build, you've got facts, but you've got to build a narrative around those facts to fit what the law is. And um, it is creative, uh, can be. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for sure, for sure, definitely. It is and funny important. how many lawyers become authors or comedians <laughs> and need some sort of outlet. <laughs> uh, I guess for me it's a fairly obvious trajectory to have been writing and editing for other people to have a crack at doing it um, myself. And I, I, I had always wanted to be a writer from, you know, for as long as I can remember, but... Um, and I had to pay the bills, and so I kind of um, fell into the sort of corporate consulting writing, and I really, really enjoyed it, even though, as I said, it's grey literature, but there's something about it I really love, and I think it's that wrangling with words that I love. I, I love words, and I love language, and um, so... I don't know, it was just, yeah, a natural but very, whatever reason, multiple reasons, very delayed process for me. Um, I wish I'd been doing it in my 20s, but I wasn't. And, um, uh, yeah, I'd like to think that I've done my 10,000 hours. You know how they, mm-hmm. they say you need 10,000 hours to become a master at something? I'm not claiming I'm a master, but um, hopefully I've sort of done some of the hard yards so that I kind of knew if I'd crafted a reasonable sentence or not mm. what about you peter you because you've got a you've got a background in law and biomedics and then you have done the masters in creative writing as well i say oh <clears throat> yeah you know just largely similar stories to what i'm hearing here you know uh yeah, I, I wrote this as part of a master's in in london and i was like the only australian on the course so you know, you walk in with a bit of a Yahoo, you know, this colonial, um, they kind of don't really take you. Yeah. Maybe, you know, you're not a deep, you know, sort of from that literary heritage. I mean, we have a rich one here, but it's not quite, you know, just we're a younger country. But it also was a bit of a strength because I was writing things, I was writing things that um, were very different to them. So you stood out uh, and that's something that Australian literature Outback Noir um, can offer. Um, I did a um, law degree in a honours in criminal law, so I was kind of inspired by. We won't by hold that. that against you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't work as a lawyer, but you know, you're reading about evidence and cases and and motives, and it's really interesting stuff. And I remember someone said to me, "If you want to make money, don't do criminal law." In that. Yeah, you know, the clients, the clientele is very different to um, corporate law or um, even family law from that respect. So I guess we're all, we all have a desire to tell 
stories, you know, that we're, we're, we're big readers. And at some point you kind of go, your imagination starts to race and you think, oh, I can, I can do this. And you've got to hold down a day job potentially and pay the bills. So it usually begins on the fringes. I think most of the stoning uh, I wrote after midnight um, and it usually was at the end of the day when things were quiet and, I, you know, my brain could settle and the words could finally come out onto the page. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, very similar stories that I hear from, you know, especially debut uh, authors and many authors for how it begins and then the trajectory and how it takes off. Yeah. Have you got a, um, an elevator pitch for your novel? A little sort of, can you sort of describe it succinctly? My book? Yeah. I didn't know we were selling it. Well, no, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, go, go for it. Oh, well, my book's about a small country town in, in Outback Australia where a school teacher is um, found tied to a tree and, and stoned to death. So there's a cop that has to come and investigate it. It's sort of a, it was an idea that came to me when I was living in, in the UK and I was just sort of blurted it out because um, I was talking with my wife and, and then a few days went by and I thought, mm, I think there's something in that. So it, it just comes from, you know, throwing ideas around and seeing what sticks. Mm. Does anyone else want to have a, a crack at pitching their, their novel? Okay. Okay. Sorry. The first son gets killed, gunned down in the street of Western Sydney, putting out the bins. As you do in Western Sydney when you're putting out the bins, you get gunned down. And the second son must step up. So I'm writing here about a Croatian crime family. And the question I asked myself about my protagonist, Johnny Novak, is if you're born into a crime family, can you get out? And uh, the, the story is also told from his wife's point of view, Amy Novak, and she's a nice middle-class Aussie chick who just happens to marry a gangster. And the question I asked her was, will you stay? Because Johnny is tasked with seeking revenge for his elder brother's death. So obviously the gang violence escalates because the Croatians blame the Serbians and, uh, and, and so it goes from here. And underneath it all, there is a murder mystery, uh, who killed Ivan Novak. Amy Novak provides the psychological thriller. Is she telling us everything she knows? And Johnny Novak is providing the action thriller as he decides to pull off the drug heist of his life. How was that? That was pretty good. Okay. That was ex excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I'll have a crack. Um, won't be as good as 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 Lorraine's. It'll be much um, better than one that I've come up with. Okay. <laughs> so disgraced former lawyer. She's had a sliding doors moment in her past. Catas catastrophic incident that she caused. Uh, she's escaping that. She's uh, a little bit of a Jack Reacher type uh, character. She can turn up anywhere. At, in the second novel, she's uh, white throat. She's house sitting in uh, Queensland on the coast, a uh, tiny little retirement town, uh, when uh, her a woman is violently murdered. Um, but well, she thinks it's murder, but the police thinks it's suicide. Um, and she's powerfully affected by this death. 
uh, because this person was someone extremely close to her from her past as a child, um, somewhat of a mentor, an auntie, a mother figure. And uh, she tries her utmost to get the police to investigate. Uh, but there's nothing really that she can point to that this is a murder that the police can hang their, hang their hooks on. So she, has, she goes after it herself. She has her sidekick uh, who appears from the first book as well, Matthew Torrens, a former standover man, um, a gorgeous character that I love writing. Um, he's helping uh, or not helping, whichever way you want to look at it. She's trying to manipulate him. She's trying to be a friend, good friend. She does all sorts of the wrong things. Uh, and in the end, she's tracking down a, a number of suspects, all of whom had a motive uh, to see the end of this wildlife warrior uh, that she called her auntie. You left out the turtle. The turtle. There's a turtle in it. <laughs> so the title is, uh, yeah, so, so um, the death is of the Helen, the, the leader of the wildlife movement in the town. She's trying to save the habitat for an endangered uh, freshwater turtle called the white-throated snapping turtle. Hence, white throat, but don't be deceived, there's more to the title. <laughs> okay, I'll have a go. Uh, Joy Henderson is a young girl living in a family that's drowning in lies and secrets. Uh, a little girl goes missing from a neighbouring farm and uh, there's a secret in her there's a few secrets in her family as well, dating back to before she was born, lots of secrets and lies, uh, which she sort of um, deals with while she's young and then she comes back as an adult to nurse her dying father and decide, she and her sister decide to wreak revenge for what he did to them when they were young, but things don't go quite according to plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've got, you know, four very different novels. And it's kind of interesting that you've kind of sat where you have. You sort of have almost two sort of more traditional sort of crime stories. And then the other end we have almost sort of crime literary fiction. Um, what sort of was, what made you choose the stories that you've told? Another crack. Okay, sorry. It's about my husband's. I was married to a career criminal. He was my first husband. And towards the end of our marriage, although he was retired for the entirety of our marriage, he went back to his old gig uh, at the end of our marriage and he was busted in Louisville, Kentucky with 100 kilos of marijuana. And so suddenly I was the wife of a criminal and I had to go over there and try and get him out spend our life savings getting them out. And it, that was a really surreal experience for me as a nice middle-class Aussie chick. Uh, so I think that informed the character of Amy very much. Uh, and my current and hopefully last husband is a Croatian. And he uh, left school at, at 14. He was dyslexic and he became a criminal. So obviously I'm attracted to bad guys, but he he kind of pulled himself up before he hit 18 and realised this wasn't a great life 
to lead and decided to become a successful businessman, even though he couldn't read. So that's what he ended up doing. Bravo for him. And I wondered, I extrapolated, he became, he, he was the inspiration for Johnny Novak. But I thought, well, what if you're born into a crime family? You know, what if I put him into a crime family? Because Stead's family, by the way, were not criminals. His Croatian family are not criminals, but Johnny's are. So that was the inspiration behind it and, and why it all bubbled up in my head and had to be written. It's the all-important what-ifs. Yeah, exactly. How do you get how do you get out if you're born in a crime family? Michael Corleone certainly couldn't get out, could he? But he kind of went from the darkness, sorry, the light, because he was a war hero, remember? He went from the light into the darkness, and boy, did he go into the darkness, didn't he? He just got darker and darker, whereas I wanted Johnny's uh, character arc to head in the other direction. Uh, he's always been a gangster with a conscience, uh, but as he's asked with asked to do more and more terrible things, it becomes harder and harder for him to to do that. And and he he wants to break free from his family, but you know he's under the thumb of Milan Novak, his father, who is a wonderful character to write. I love writing Milan because he 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 speaks like this. And he just wants everybody to do what he wants. <laughs> He's quite the brutal patriarch. He's absolutely the brutal patriarch. I love him. <laughs> uh, well, for me, I definitely wanted to write crime fiction. I love the satisfying buzz at the end of a novel, a crime fiction novel. Um, I was also pretty burdened by my current job at the time and wanted to have a lot of fun and wanted to be entertained um, and entertain others. Um, in terms of the character, uh, I really wanted to explore a character who had had a like a sliding door moment. I, I didn't want to write cops. I wanted to write an ordinary person, um, a little bit like Harrison Ford in Frantic, you know, where they get caught up in something that they can't let go and they must pursue. But I also wanted to, to have had uh, this past incident that um, changed her life entirely. And the first book is called Lapse, as in momentary lapse. So it was like a moment in time where you do something or you take an action or you make a decision and your life is never the same again. Um, and in her case, in a bad way, a very bad way. Um, and I just, and it's something that we call, could all do. I'm not gonna give it away in case you haven't read the first book, but. Um, it's something that could happen to any any of us, um, in, including myself. Um, and so that was kind of really motivating me. I wanted to explore also her shame and guilt about that. <clears throat> but that's all the thread that runs underneath. The, the story, um, again, it's ordinary people who are doing things um, real, um, you know, the first book again. I can't let sh let it let it out. But these are people who are highly motivated to do the the bad things that they're doing for reasons that would probably not surprise you. Um, but they're doing some very bad things. Um, in the second book, again, you have a host of ordinary people um, trying to get by. Um, but where's that line? You know, have they crossed it? 
have they are they someone who's involved with the with the death of this good woman, Helen Wesley? Um, so these are kind of the ish, the the directions I like to take in my fiction. Um, the, there are cops, and and the cops in book two are, you know, I kind of like them. Um, they're kind of under resourced, overworked. Another reason why an ordinary citizen has to take up the cause um and they're they're good they're bad they do mean things they do great things um so so that's kind of the the direction i'm taking i guess and what inspires me is is ordinary folk Mm. um in ordinary situations um usually in some sort of social context that we all know about there's a heap of characters in white throat that are devastated by a financial planning scandal and they're financially up against the wall. They're highly motivated to um, do something about their situation. Um, There's also mining developers and corporate executives. How far will they go? Um, What about the mayor? He really needs jobs. Jobs means votes for this mining proposal. So, you know, these are all kind of motivations that, that are out there every day in our everyday world. But, of course, in crime fiction, we get to kind of take it that little extra step forward and and really play with those ideas. That's so fun. Do you consider your book to be a a crime fiction or psychological thriller? Yes and no. Uh, It's kind of been tagged more as a psychological thriller. And I know this because I signed a two-book deal and the contract says book two is another compelling psychological thriller. <laughs> so um, that's what I've written apparently. Uh, so, no, I don't think it falls into the standard crime genre. Um, there is a cop in it and he, I'm going to say he does solve some of the crimes, mysteries that are that are from the past yeah, and maybe even contemporary. historic crime which is kind of underneath yeah. everything else that's going on. Yeah, the little girl who goes missing in the 1960s is never found and the cop, a young cop at the time, um, 20 years later, is still frustrated that he hasn't been able to solve that crime and it, and then there's another crime, oh, possible crime that occurs and he starts to think that the two might be linked. So I do have a cop in that sort of sense but it's not procedural yeah. in the normal um, way that a lot of crime novels are, which I love. Um, but I, I kind of didn't want to write about that. And, in fact, I never, the cop's name is Shepard, and I never envisaged writing a cop and one day he kind of popped up on the page and I thought, oh, I don't really want you in this novel, but you kind of <laughs> seem all right. And I thought I'll just write a couple of chapters with him and see how I go and I really liked him and um, the dynamics he has with a local GP. And um, so he stayed but he he's not the hero as such and there's a there's some doubt as to what he actually knows and the conclusions that he comes to so no it's not quite no it's not a crime novel in the normal sense no and and i i i will say i didn't set out to write a crime novel and um but someone said to me you know pretty much every book has a you know, if there's conflict or something like that, there's probably a crime. Mm. And so I'm going to start reading books to see whether every book 
has a crime of some kind in it or what, what the source of the conflict yeah. is or the culmination of the conflict perhaps. Yeah. Crime so, just could be bad grammar. True, absolutely true. As an editor, I, that is absolutely true. Wasn't some of it autobiographically based, oh. inspired? Yes, sorry. Cathartic? Yes, so uh, some of the events in this book are real, Um, not the death of the little girl, although I was always quite um, macabrely sort of fascinated as a girl when I heard that children are abducted and disappear and nobody ever hears of them again. And, um, you know, of course, it's ultimate tragedy for a family. but there are other elements in the book that are based on my um, my childhood, predominantly the setting and the family dynamics um, and a couple of other things like the um, those of you who've read it, the story of the neighbours next door, the Larsons, is actually true. <laughs> it happened to next-door neighbours. If you haven't read it, hopefully that's intrigued you enough to buy it mm. <laughs> and read it. Thanks. Mm. Do you kind of consider your um, novel, Peter, to be procedural? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> no, it's just kind of it's it's just that kind of interesting thing of like the um, the crime is so upfront. I mean, there's a, a young woman who's been stoned to death, not with a bong, but actually rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this uh, Greek detective comes to town to solve it, with, but he's also had a history in the town. So in a way, it's kind of a, almost a kind of exploration of his history as well. Yeah, I've just no, I just I asked that because I've heard it described as a procedural story, and it's almost an anti-procedural story because there's almost n- n- no procedures are followed in this in this lawless town um, um, where the detective, and again, inspired by my own life in Greek Australian background, um, there's part of that in in every book that we we hear about. Um, uh, I remember when I was living in the UK, I had a, a London agent who had read a book I'd ri- written before this, and um, she said, I like, she put it really simply, agents are, are good at doing that. She said, I, I like that you write about important things. And I kind of went, oh, it's interesting that that's resonated with her and I should keep going with that. So when I turned to write this book, I thought, what more important thing to write about than to write about my own country? and try to say something significant about Australia, where we're going right, where we're going wrong. Um, and, you know, something that I feel personal connection to, again, we all have part of ourselves in these books, is I come from a, a migrant background. My parents were immigrants to Australia. My grandparents were refugees who went to Greece. You see where the country's heading now with treatment for new arrivals, asylum seekers, refugees, and I thought there's something that I might be able to lend my voice to. Um, so I s- set up this town, this lawless outback town where nothing works and no procedures are followed and I had a, a, a very visceral uh, death that is associated with a culture and a religion. Uh, you bring in your migrant detective there's uh, an immigration detention centre that exists in this town, uh, and that's something that they do have in, in a number of outback towns in Australia. It's often there kind of out of the way, but also to stimulate the economy. Uh, and then you also have tensions with the local um, Indigenous community 
uh, or by virtue of the treatment that they've had over many years, um, you know, displacement of lands, deaths in custody. So I, I had all these things I wanted to write about, and it was a matter of boiling them down to the uh, individual level, creating characters, a township, and and you know, channeling these themes through through those particular characters in that story. Yep. Um, so that's something I was really proud of doing and 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 which um you know has resonated at least in the reviews i've seen with um uh publishers and media outlets in in the uk especially that you know here's a guy who's, who's trying to say something about his country what we're getting right what we're getting wrong you know not every country is perfect every country has its own issues but this was something about australia that i felt we'd we'd, we'd lost our way Many people have talked about these topics, and I wanted to do it through literature. Beauty of a crime is that it 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 starts that conversation. It you know things become unearthed. You know secrets are found out about people, and questions get asked. Mm. So I thought that's a great prism through which to explore uh, topics like that. Yeah, um, that's actually a really good point that uh, I wanted to sort of talk about as well was the way that crime is really useful in dealing with issues. And I don't know whether it's because we're writers and interested or whether it's just crime is just a useful tool to sort of start that that conversation. I'm hoping it's both, Andy. Um, certainly, um, I think Peter put it really succinctly that, uh, you know, this type of fiction is a fantastic way to focus the attention and highlight um, issues that, you know, we, we're all aware of. They're, they're kind of there. Hmm. Uh, are we engaged? Are we involved? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you mentioned the turtle. I like one of my passions is species survival. Um, ta as a Tasmanian, we killed all the Tasmanian tigers. Um, 1932, I think it was, was the last one died in captivity. There's some absolutely horrific video footage, and, and I still feel the grief from that. So, you know, I get to write an entertaining novel that puts a spotlight on. A really important environmental theme that we we grapple with, but not in a black and white sort of. I love the the genre in that. I don't think anyone's doing anything didactic or or, or preachy. Yeah. Um, our characters Could are turn the audience off. Yeah, like um, you know, Ralph, the resident president in White Road, is um, he's you know completely anti saving a turtle. Um, and even the the hero of the novel is ambivalent, but we get to just think about it and all the opposing issues, the complexity and the the intractable nature of some of these issues that we face. Mm. It's a great way to explore. Yeah. Is there a line that you won't cross? Is there an issue that's too big for crime to handle? I'd probably say no. There's certain issues I wouldn't handle. Yeah. Um, just um, lack of experience lack of background, you know, very middle-class background. Uh, some things I probably wouldn't attempt um, that others are doing. I'll let others speak on that, though. You're not supposed to kill any animals. <laughs> Don't. I, I, I disagree. <laughs> well, because uh, yeah. I did kill an animal in my box. I did, and I didn't know it was a really, really bad thing. I was trying to illustrate how very, very bad the villain was. And at that stage, we still don't really know who the villain is. We just, it's a kind of lurking presence. Uh, but 
boy, did I did get some feedback on that. And, and I have since learned that you probably shouldn't kill a dog. And uh, in the sequel, which I'm, I'm writing right now, one very early draft, I, uh, Amy and Johnny have a 10-year-old child named Sasha. He's 11 by the time the sequel comes out. And for one moment, I thought, well, what if he killed someone while he was sleepwalking? And I sent off, you know, a quick synopsis to my editor who just said, are you mad? I mean, that's definitely a line you shouldn't cross. Having a killer child is not a smart move. So back away from that, you know. So I think there are, especially when you are inexperienced as I am, you know, you, you do want to be careful. But I am very much focused and, and intrigued and I'll go back to the word focused on domestic violence in this country and how incredibly prevalent it is and it doesn't seem to be stopping. And so that's a real focus for me for the second book is uh, and, and taking, taking a bit of ownership of that as a population uh, and what individuals are doing to help stop it. Um, Sorry, I interrupted Lorraine, but we've we've emailed about this topic actually. <laughs> Whether you kill the animal, or the pets, or other animals or not, and I was just in a session with Mark Brandy. I don't know whether any of you have read the others or not, but um, there are a few animals that get killed in in that, and uh, and there are a few animals that get well. There are a lot of animals actually that get killed in this. Some in a very practical sense, in terms for the family to survive and eat, but not gratuitously. Like no, yeah. no, hopefully not. No, um, I, I don't know. I, it's it's an interesting topic, and it's the topic of the debate later today. Um, but I, I think it's about the relationship that you build up with your readers and the sort of contract you have with them. This is the type of book you're about to read. This is the kind of scenarios I'm presenting to you in terms of people and settings and eras and attitudes towards, for example, domestic violence or the environment or, um, you know, cultural issues and refugees and so on, which I think, you know, it's wonderful that we all explore these ideas both for ourselves and for our readers. Um, but I, I think we do have a contract with readers and, yeah, so I, I think i probably set up fairly early on in here that some grim things are going to happen. Um, so I, I don't know, we might have to continue to agree to disagree, but we've had a really great um, series of emails talking about different things about writing your first novel and what do you do about things like the the pet dog or whatever it might be, how far will we go? I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I have to say I don't think there's anything that collectively writers can't tackle but like Sarah there are a lot of things I'm not going to go close to for very similar reasons um yeah I'll just say quickly um I think you know as well as having a contract with readers you always have to have a contract with the subjects that you're writing about and make sure that they're written about respectively and accurately so my own experience is in writing the stoning, you know, was that I was representing a number of different cross sections of the community, you know, vulnerable groups, new arrivals and first Australians. And, and I was worried about getting that right, you know, 
in the current climate, it's a, it's a very it's a hot button topic, you know, and that Australia writers and many countries have a history of misrepresentation and misappropriation. Um, so, in in portraying these individuals, I needed to conduct research. So, I guess what I'm saying is, you can write about anything, provided it's researched. Um, something else that I had to avail myself of was sensitivity readers who, who read the book to make sure that that they were you know that group was portrayed yep. sensitively and accurately and, and that's um something i was encouraged by both um you know to to make sure that i've done it properly accurately and also sensitively mm. um so i would encourage you know anyone who's writing to there are some tricky topics if you're going to write about child abuse or domestic violence or treatment of new arrivals, these are meaty topics. Crime is the perfect vehicle in which to do them, but there is a process that you you almost have to follow. And when you get it right, it's it's very sweet and very satisfying. Mm. That's probably a good point to uh, open it up to questions. All right, so this one is uh, directed to Sarah. Was it always your intention to write a series? And was Clementine's nomadic existence a, a, a strategy so you could explore different locations and settings? And will she be coming to Tasmania in book three? <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely question. Thank a you, whoever that was on Zoom. <laughs> um, no, I didn't, I didn't set out to write a series. I didn't even know if I would be published. I mean, little, you know, so I, I just set out to write something that I was really passionate about or or interested or curious about. Um, I think um, what happened, though, in the course of that book, writing that book, um, is that Clementine Jones' journey is such a minuscule sort of progression from the very damaged person she is at the start with some really nasty flashbacks that inter- interfere with her life and so forth to where she is at the end and even in the final scene where she's finally at a stage where she can actually open up to someone and actually allow herself to have a friend and speak to someone mm-hmm. about what has happened. Um, and, and that kind of arc was really um, compelling for me to take her to the next step and even as you're writing the end, I'm thinking that is so not the end. Um, and so I, I re- wasn't long after that I came up with the next idea and I kind of thought, well, in book one she takes up this leadership role of a community organisation and that is her. She just gets really bored really quickly and she can't just sit in the back, back row and not do something. So um, she's finding herself engaged in whatever is going on. And, of course, she, she's happy to flee wherever she feels uncomfortable and she's become, you know, the fishbowl, the, the goldfish in a fishbowl in the little town that she's in. Um, so she flees that as well. And in the second book we find her elsewhere. Um, but, yeah, that nomadic thing, I, I didn't plan that originally but I love it and, I, I, yeah, I could pretty much see her going to Tasmania. I would love to write about my heart, where my heart lies. Um, actually, that's why I didn't because it's too close. The second yeah. book, I, I just couldn't set it in Tasmania. It's just too dear to me. Um, so I set it somewhere where we were going to sail to. The very first place we sailed to, that was where I set my book and um, 
I think, um, but but yeah, I'd love to put her in Tasmania. As, as a crime author, you you got it. You're realizing, and I'm becoming aware of it as well. You're not just building a world; you're building a universe mm. that spans a number of books, potentially a series, and and you're going to get questions like that, mm. um, and you don't necessarily have all the answers because you, you you're not really sure where the you know the rocket is gonna is gonna land. And isn't that part of the wonder and beauty of for me for writing I, I don't know where where it's going to end up I don't know what's going to come out of my mind or why or when and and I think that hopefully if I'm surprised and and enjoy uh what I'm writing that other people will but I don't know whether you guys are plotters or pantsers. Pantser. Yeah, pantser, plotter, pantser. Uh, I'm becoming a plotter now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I'm a little bit for novel, the next novel, but um, I think there's just something absolutely beautiful about writing that just suddenly appears on the page that you weren't expecting. So, yeah. And that surprise, you go, where did it come from? Yeah. We have a question from the floor. Oh, look, an author down the back, I believe. I'll just repeat the question for those who were Zooming, and it was about second book syndrome and uh, if any on the panel was sort of dealing with that or had any thoughts about it. I'm up to the fourth draft of the second book, which is called The Double Bind, and it's it's hard. It's been It's actually been really hard because the first book, you've got no timeline. You know, you're free. You're free to write about anything you want. And in the second book, if it's a, a part of a series, there's some things you can't do again. I'm not killing a dog, that's for sure. <laughs> I <And> am. <laughs> I can't, and I can't kidnap anyone. And I love kidnapping people. So but I can, I, can, I can wander around the park and decide who I want to murder. So that's always fun. But it is, it is much harder. Anna, and 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 I'm and I'm having to really draw on um, some hidden, I hope, hope not too hidden strengths to get through it. It's tough. Uh, I've had I have had to become a bit more of a plotter, and um, uh, about I reckon about seventy five percent of the way through writing this, I thought, oh, I think I need to have a spreadsheet that shows who's doing what when because I've got these three time threads and I have to I had to arrange them. In each time thread it had to be chronological but I couldn't have certain things revealed in certain time threads before other things occurred in other time threads. So it was pretty complex. I kind of had to map it all out and I did that at about, as I said, when I was about 75% of the way through. Now with this, the second novel, I've done it, five percent of the way through and I keep building it and I wish I could have a huge spreadsheet on a wall that was electronic because you know post-its and stuff like that aren't going to quite work for me so I've I've had to do that very conscious of the time line and the pressure that comes with that but also quite um pleased that well, A, you know it's going well for me, I know it's going to be published unless I do a really crap job, I suppose. Um, because I've got a two-book deal. Um, but also I have the support of an editor and a publisher. So I've got, you know, a great relationship, same publisher, same editor for the second book. And um and that's kind of like a um, you know, it's kind of like people holding you up and 
they keep telling me that it's good and that it's going to be great. And so I'm not so sure that it is good at the moment, but hopefully enough um, rework and so on. But it's a different, um, you're in a different mindset, both it's double-edged. You have the pressure of having to produce another one, but you also have the um, other people's confidence and they're, they're backing you and saying we're going to do this because we liked we liked this one so much. We're going to have to probably wrap it up. We'll just uh, we'll back up these authors by uh, a round of applause to say thank you. Thanks for spending that hour with us. Uh, next episode, we'll be back with the whole team where we'll be talking and arguing about the latest crime book that we've read. So from all of us working to bring you the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and all of our year-round events, we look forward to presenting you with what we have in store this year as the sessions unfold and hopefully meeting you in person soon. So till then, keep listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.